All right, Obadiah, the shortest book in the Bible. Does that mean that this is going to be the shortest message I've ever preached? Everybody's like, no, Um, probably not, because this thing is just, yeah, it's like one page. It's one chapter, 21 verses, super short. And um, I have never preached or taught out of Obadiah. It's like the redheaded stepchild of the Bible. No one knows anything about it. Um, It doesn't really... When you read it, it doesn't really, how does this apply to my life? There's no, there's, no, there's no practical application. There's nothing in here for me to memorize, to build me up later. What the, what, why is this in here? All right, it is, it's actually so important. It requires us to do a little bit of history, a little bit of looking back, a little bit of looking forward, actually. And then you'll understand why it is canon, why God thought that it would be a very good, good idea to include this book. So let's read some of it. Um, all right, we'll go. We'll start off from the very beginning, and I'll, when you guys, when I see that you're getting bored, I'll, I'll change. Um, Obadiah. We don't know exactly who he who he was or uh, when this was written. Obadiah uh, translates as a servant of the, of Yahweh or servant of the Lord, uh, but specifically Yahweh. So he's Yahweh's servant, but it's kind of a common name. So there's a number of Obadiahs in the Bible, and we're just not sure. Like, none of the smart guys know who this one is. So it's not, you know, this isn't liberal theology. The conservative guys don't know who Obadiah is, and there's nearly no tradition on, on who wrote Obadiah, or even when it was written. There's a couple of theories. One, that it was written after the Babylonian exile, or two, that it was written prior to the Babylonian exile as a prophecy. And again, it really doesn't matter. But those are just the, those are just the, the that's the context of it. And again, we just don't know. And you're just going to have to be okay with that. Um, so yeah, if you're a control freak, uh, sorry. All right, the vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. It's a little nation to uh, the east on the other side of the Jordan. We have heard a message from the Lord, an envoy sent to the nations to say, Rise and let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. Okay, this is important. You probably should underline this part. The pride of your heart has deceived you. That's, that's the topic of the whole message today. Underline it, highlight it, box it. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks. Hey, Aaron, can we show that picture? Not that one. There we go. That's Petra. This is where Edom is located. Have you ever heard of Petra? It's in the Jordan right now. Uh, Let's go to the next one. So this is where these guys live. Let's go to the next one. And that's the fame. Well, that one's somewhat famous. The last one. There's only three. Ah, dang it. I left out the most famous one. But it's in Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Last Crusade. Remember that movie? Where they had the, yeah, that's it. That's, that's where these guys lived. That's where the Edomites lived. And then later became a major trading route. All the really cool architectural stuff was, during, was done during the Persian period. Okay. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and you make your home on the heights. You who say to yourselves, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down declares the Lord. 
if thieves come to you, and if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? Okay. But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to your borders. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not, uh, you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will, not, I will not destroy the wise men of Edom, men of understanding in the mountains of Esau. Will I not, excuse me. Will I not de destroy the wise men in the mountains, the mountains of Esau? You warriors of Tenement, you will be terrified. Okay, so you get the general idea, right? So uh, these, who are the Edomites? The Edomites, again, they live on the other side of the Jordan. Uh, they are always... It, They've always been antagonistic towards God's people, the nation of Israel. They've always, there's always been this tension. There has never been an alliance between the nation of Edom and Israel. And they have, um, they have this, this, this natural fortress up in these mountains, up in these clefts. So they would, they would pour out in these raiding parties. They would annoy everybody. And then they would run back and hide in their caves. And you could not catch them. Even if you sent an army in to get them, the army had to go through a very narrow channel, two men deep. And so you could just sit there and you just pick them off one by one up to the thousands. And so you couldn't cut, you couldn't touch these guys. And so they're sitting up in, in their perch up in, this, up in this natural castle and they're safe. And they're making lots of money and they're very annoying. And they have something that comes up that wells up inside of them that I don't, the part that you should have underlined, it is they have the pride of heart. And this is the whole theme of the book. This is why it makes it in here. But we need to understand something more, something deeper about who Edom is and why it's important. Because we know that Israel has lots of enemies, right? And even to this day, they, Israel is completely surrounded on all sides and from the sky and from the sea. Everybody hates Israel except for us, at least for the moment, Right? Even that's questionable. But the same is true in ancient times. Everybody hated them. So, who is Edom? Why are they special? Why are they different than all of the other enemies? Well, does anybody know? Does anybody know why Edom's special? Okay, I'll tell you. We actually have to go back in time. We have to go back to the very first book that we opened up when we started this series. And I, I, complete, I had to skip it because, well, the first book is Genesis, and Genesis is huge, right? Genesis is not only is it a massive work of, uh, work of literature, and it takes up a lot of space, there's a lot of amazing stories, and it covers a humongous amount of time. And Moses is my guy, so I wanted to talk about Moses when, in reality, we should have spent an entire year talking about Genesis because we need to know about Jacob, who is the father of, the, of, of Israel. Oh, of course, we need to know about Abraham, his son Isaac, and then Jacob. Now, Jacob had a twin. Do we know who Jacob's twin was? Esau. Esau. 
So in reality, this nation is different from all the other enemies of Israel. It's because they are brothers. And there is, there is something that is happening in, in real time. There's a real history. There's a real tension between the younger brother and the older brother. There's a real drama between two living people. But then it also gets pushed. This relationship, this tension between the two brothers, it also gets pushed. And it's a generational sin almost. It gets pushed into the two nations. And there's, there's the tension between these two nations. And, we, and this, is what, this is what God's talking about. He's talking about actually the end of Edom. Okay, so we know, maybe you know the story. Maybe you remember the story. Uh, Isaac has two sons. And uh, they're twins. And who's the firstborn? Esau's the firstborn. There, this is a common theme throughout the scripture. The firstborn um, always serves the younger for some reason. Let's think about Cain and Abel. It's the same situation. It's just a really bizarre uh, theme that, that, that we just see reoccurs throughout the Bible. And so um, as Jacob and Esau are being born, uh, Esau is born seconds away from Jacob. But what does Jacob do when he, while he's still in his mom's womb? Do you guys remember this story? He grabs his heel. And so Jacob becomes the heel grabber. That means he's just, he's, he doesn't, Jacob doesn't want to be seconds later. There, even at birth, there is something, there, there's something, I don't know, if you ever, ever have a kid that's just wired weird when they come out, it's, he, that's this, this kid. They're both, they both are born with some very specific characteristics. The two boys grow up, and Isaac's favorite son is Esau, of course, the older son. And Isaac, or Esau, is, um, he's the adventure boy. He's the one that is playing outside all day long, and he's going on adventures, and he's running around, and he's exploring everything, and he doesn't come home until dusk. I was like that. I played all, remember what playing was like? Do our kids play anymore? No, they don't. What's the matter with our kids? Man, my mom would kick me out, and she wouldn't see me until the sun came down. Amen, Amen right? <laughs> I'd come home bloody and dirty, and, you know, me and my dog would go on adventures and, you know, get in trouble, kill things. But that was Esau. He was the hunter. He was, uh, he was burly, and he was hairy. See, see my, how I can identify with this guy? So Esau's a cool guy. Like, in our, in, you know, and when we look at men, Esau's the kind of guy that we want to emulate. He's just a cool guy. And Jacob, on the other hand, he stayed in his tents while Esau was red from the sun, from being outside all day, and he had red hair. While he was red from the sun, his younger brother, Jacob, was in the tent. And it's almost, it comes across as if Jacob had fair skin because he was always, you know, knitting next to his mom, right? Full-blown mama's boy. And again, you know the story. Esau comes back from a day of hunting, and he's hungry, and he's tired. I've heard this pitched a couple of ways. One way is that he was, so, he was starving to death, 
And there was nothing to eat, and so he, you know, Jacob tricks him into saying, uh, you know, I got this really tasty bowl of food, and um, uh, if you sell me your birthright, I'll give it to you. And Esau sells his birthright verbally to his brother. As far as we know, they're the only two around. So uh, it's almost like it's a spiritual transfer. Kind of weird. And he sells his birthright for a, 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 a bowl of a soup. Now, was Esau really going to starve to death? I mean, some people think that he might. But some people think, no, probably not. Like, there was probably food around the tent. But here's the thing about mama's boys. They can cook. <laughs> and so whatever he made was extremely tasty. And Esau wanted it. See, Esau is a man of the flesh. Do you see that? So whatever spiritual blessing that, was, that he was born into, that, that he received, that was transferred from father to father to him, he despised his spiritual blessing and he, prefer, he preferred the satisfaction of his flesh over spirituality. Does that, does that make sense? See, this is, where we get, this is where we get the tension. And then, and then, and then Jacob tricks him again. When, when Isaac is dying on his deathbed, you know the story, um, uh, Jacob gets hair and glues it on his arms. It's hilarious. And he tricks him out of the blessing. He, the, the actual the laying on of hands. And again, it's another, uh, if one was a spiritual transfer that happened in the heart of Esau, this is the spiritual transfer that actually took place from the hands into the body, and it, the, 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 the blessing or the anointing went from, uh, from, went from Isaac's directly into Jacob. Now, it's, you, that, you can leave that up to interpretation, but there is something powerful about the laying on of hands and about the impartation of an anointing. And Jacob stole it. Jacob is a mama's boy. He's a whiner. He is sneaky, and he is tricky. And all right, we'll just cut to the very end. In the last book in the, Bible, in the Old Testament is Micah. And Micah says, doesn't say this in Genesis, by the way. Okay, you ready for this? This is difficult stuff. Micah says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What? For real? How can God do that? How can, I thought God loves everybody. He does. He even loves Esau. But this is important because, again, it doesn't happen in the natural at this point in Genesis, God loves both Jacob and Esau. And if I was God, I would prefer Esau. Because I can actually identify with Esau more than I can with mama's boys. So, one, I heard this put, I don't understand how God could hate Esau. Right? Do you ever feel this way? Paul did too. If we have time, we'll get into it. I don't understand how God could hate Esau. You know what I say? I don't understand how God could love Jacob. Jacob is a little conniving liar cheater. How could God love both of these, you ready for this? 
both of these highly dysfunctional personality types, because they both are. This is what we're dealing with. We're, we're dealing with character flawed. We're dealing with both of them are broken people, but there is a fine line. There is a difference between Jacob and Esau. And we actually do see it in the soup. We do see it in the stew, because we see the condition of Esau's heart. He's a man of the flesh. He chose soup over spirituality. He chose money, wealth, power over the presence of God. That's what's really going on here. Now, uh, Jacob, um, you know, <laughs> uh, like if I don't have a younger brother, I, I wish I did, sort of. Um, my, my, um, I have, I have an 18-year-old, no, when I was 18, my parents had another child. Same parents, 18-year spread. And uh, I remember when, she, when my mom was pregnant, like, I did not want her to have a boy. They were going to name her Caleb, by the way. Him Caleb, if it was a boy. Joshua and Caleb. And I remember there just, even before uh, my sibling was born, there was this jealousy that began to well up inside of me because I was the firstborn, and I was afraid of the younger brother usurping me. Once we had the girl, it was completely okay. <laughs> like, there's like no issue whatsoever. I'm like, this is amazing. But you know, we're both grown adults and we still fight in the back seat. You stay on your side. I'm the older brother. You're my younger sister, you stay on your side. So we still fight, it's funny. 18, you'd think that I would be mature and grow up, but no, that's not true. Um, so, like, if my sister did something like this, if your siblings, like, ripped you off, like, if maybe they stole your inheritance, like, you know, <laughs> I got, oh, I had a nerve, huh? Um, I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe they told your, your parents that you were dead and they stole your inheritance. How would that feel? If, they, if you had a brother or sister that snuck in there and took everything before mom and dad died, they, like, they, made, they made your brother or your sister, you know, um, power of attorney, and they got everything, how would that, that would just feel awful, wouldn't it? And what would you do, even though they're blood? You would be super ticked off. You would say other bad words in your head, but you would never say them out loud because you're Christians. But you would say some horrible things about your own siblings, and you might even go after them. And when Jacob ripped Esau off, even though Esau despised his birthright over material and over fleshly possessions, even though there was a despising, he knew that he got ripped off and he wanted to kill Jacob. And that's why Jacob ran. And that's why he ended up under, um, living under his uncle's house, Laban. And then he manages to rip Laban off this whole time. And guess what? I mean, when I read it, again, I want to I wring Jacob's neck. I hate this kid. I hate his personality. I would not like him. There's only a few things that I like about him. I like his heart for God. That's, that's super important. But he was crafty, and he was tricky. And when we apply our Judeo-Christian ethic to Jacob's behaviors, it's not good. He is, he's a trickster, he rips off his brother. He, you know, his mom is in, involved in this manipulation. He, he, de he deceives his own father, and he's, you know, he's completely okay with it. He never apologizes or asks forgiveness for his father for his actions. This, this kid's a jerk. 
Yet, when we, when we, at least when I see it, does everybody, does anybody agree with me? Or is it just me? Okay, I got a few. Thank you. Like morally, like if you have a high moral standard and you read the story of Jacob, you're going in your mind, why does God love this guy? Because he's a little snake. Why does God love this guy? Again, this is, we have, to, we have to ask these questions. Why? Jacob, again, even though he was a, a trickster, he had a heart for God. And when we read these stories, we're like, okay, I'm not quite sure I understand how, why God loved him. But he was with this, this tricky attitude. This, um, when we read it, we might go, ugh. But when the ancients read the stories of Jacob ripping everybody off, when they're sitting around a campfire listening to these stories, they loved it. They loved this guy. He's, um, uh, he is a, he's a trickster hero. It's an archetype. It's actually a very, very powerful archetype. So in the Mideast culture... They're actually looking up, and they actually appreciate Jacob's trickiness as moral virtue. That's tough. Uh, I don't know if I can do this and be culturally sensitive. Uh, when I was in the antique business, you, you have to deal with people from different cultures differently. One time I was buying in Israel, and there, there has to have this haggle thing go back and forth. You have to do it. It's just a part of business. And so if you go in and, and, and you see the price tag, and if you, if you don't haggle, and if you pay full price, guess what? You got cheated. You got ripped off. And guess whose fault it is? It's your fault. You have to at least start by half than uh, half of what is what's marked on the tag. Well, again, I was going down, I was going down to the, the streets of Jerusalem, and this, you know, you could tell that the merchants were getting frustrated with dealing with Westerners, because Westerners, we don't right, we don't necessarily like to haggle. How many people like to go and haggle? At, some some guys do. But some people don't. That's why, what is it, CarMax? That's why it's doing so well. Because there's, you don't haggle. You get the, they just print the bottom price, supposedly. And because um, we don't like to do it. So I was going down, and the merchant says, hey, young Western man, come in here and let me rip you off. Right? <laughs> so that's the attitude. And so they love this trickster attitude. But I, don't, I really don't believe that God did. Because God does not delight in unbalanced scales. And so while the, the Mideastern people, they would, they would value this type of behavior, God doesn't. And I actually, it actually gets highlighted in Obadiah. I don't have time to get into it. All right. So, we get the, so that's the general uh, consensus. Okay, so we know the story of Jacob. We know that he's a little trickster guy. Yet he does, he was able to um, 
through deception and through hard work and through being persistent. Okay, these are the good Judeo-Christian work ethics that we talk about. So he is very consistent. He's hardworking. He sticks it out. He serves Laban uh, ceaselessly for years. He ends up with, you know, two wives, and then it gets more complicated after that. But you guys get the idea. But he sticks it out, and he becomes a wealthy man. He, he is constantly working. He's constantly in, he, not only does he work his body, he works his mind. So he's, at, he's able to use his mind to build wealth. It's an amazing thing. And he's at this point where he wants to return and claim his inheritance. And this is probably one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible. He returns back to Israel, and as he's on his way back, uh, he's got two. He's got his. He's got his herds. He's got his women. He's got his soldiers. He's got. He has become a success. He has become a power. And he's. He wants to reconnect with his brother, where the, where they haven't talked in years. And last time they did connect, Esau was chasing them out of the country, wanting to kill him. And. He, Jacob, we call this the dark night of the soul. Jacob is in the dark night of the soul. He, is, he, he needs to cross into God's blessing, what God has called him to be. He knows that. And yet on the other side is imminent death. His brother can and will kill him. And yet he is, this is what makes Jacob special. This is why God's mark is on him. And yet he is willing to take the risk to go into danger, to go into risk, to step into God's blessing. And it is in that dark night of the soul where he knows that he is going for broke. Everything that he has, he's putting it on the table and he's willing to risk death to encounter God. And guess what? He does encounter God. It says, it's the, it says in, the, in the middle of the night, he wrestles with the angel of the Lord. All night long, and you see Jacob's sneaky personality well up while he is wrestling with this angel of the Lord. And he does the same thing that he did to his brother while he was in the womb. He grabs this angel of the Lord. He says, you will, I'm not going to let you go until you, what? Until you bless me. And that, my friends, has to be the attitude of our hearts if we want to continue in intimacy with the Lord. It's almost like you have to have that. Again, this isn't politically correct. You have to have that Jewish attitude. You have to be a Jew in this sense. You have to say, I want it at no matter what the cost, no matter how dangerous this angel of the Lord is, I'm going to hold on to him and I'm going to say, I am not going to let you go until you bless me. Like when we read that initially, like what in the world is this idiot doing? He's wrestling with, and it, it, once the veil comes off, he is not wrestling with the angel of the Lord. He is wrestling with Yahweh himself or some type of a, a form of Jesus. That is who he's actually wrestling. And he wrestles with this guy all night long. And my friends, you have to wrestle with God. You must. The Jacob's name means conniving, sneaky, heel grabber. And all night long, he wrestles with this angel. And the angel, or the, this deification, whatever it was, it, God and the, Yahweh, whatever, 
I mean, you think that, I mean, Jacob's wore out. This angel's just going through the motions, right? You know, he's hanging on to him like, I'm winning. <laughs> Have you ever wrestled with God and said, guess what, I'm winning? No. The angel does something very, a gesture, a motion, a, a slight move of the hand. And it's like, it's almost like as the finger of God himself touches, just barely glances, touches Jacob's hip, and it throws his hip out of the socket. And then finally, this, you know, this sneaky young man goes, Uncle, God, you win. And his name gets changed. His very identity from being a sneaky mama's boy heel grabber gets changed to Israel, which, which translates as the one who strives, struggles, or wrestles with God. That is what the people of God do. You have to strive and wrestle with God. If you're not wrestling with God, you're not doing faith right. That means you are, you, okay, let's just be honest. We all have issues, we all have problems, we all have hangups, and most of them are directed to God. God, why haven't you blessed me? And instead of actually verbalizing, God, why haven't you blessed me? You bury it. And you choose not to wrestle with God. You choose not to talk to him about the very difficult things in your life. And instead, you just say, praise the Jesus, I love you, while there's this animosity that you have towards the Lord that you haven't addressed yet because you're, you're, not, you're not willing to wrestle, because he just might touch your hip and throw something out of the socket, and it just might hurt like hell, right? Jacob, for the rest of his life, he walks with a limp for the rest of his life, and he probably enjoyed it, because he says, this is where I wrestled with the Lord, and he touched me, and changed, changed my very identity from being sneaky to being one who wrestles with God. He, he walked around like it was a badge of honor. It's like he's showing off his scars. And you, know, you have kids that do that? They hurt themselves, and they show off their wound? That's what he did with this. I wrestled with God. Here's the results of it. Could have smoked me, but now I just limp around. Uh, John Wember says, said, I never trust anybody, any Christian that does not walk with the limp. Yeah? Because if you don't walk with a limp, you're, you're a hypocrite. Wow. All right. Okay, as far as we know, after this, after this powerful encounter with the Lord, Jacob crosses the river, the Jabbok River, and encounters Esau, and they both meet in the field, and it's like the tension is so thick, you can just feel it in the air, and they're, they're walking towards each other, armies on both sides, and, and Jacob doesn't know what to expect. So he walks up to his brother, he's like maybe wanting to do this because he's afraid he's gonna get his head lopped off or something, and yet Esau embraces him. So as far as we know, this was reconciliation at this point between two brothers. And then the story ends. And then God makes these twins, he makes both of them nations, the nation of Israel, and Esau becomes the nation of Edom. But now we push this whole relationship, this whole dysfunctional brother thing into, into an analogy of two kingdoms. 
one that is full of pride, and one that submits to the spiritual authority of God. Now, we know that Israel, you've been, if you've been in the class for, since the beginning, you know Israel has some major issues. Uh, actually, pride's not one of them. Well, pride is one of them, but they, oh, idolatry is pretty much the big, the big deal. But Edom is a, is a nation that is full of pride, and pride is the ultimate sin. Uh, think, about, think about your failures this past year, the, the areas where you sinned. Maybe you had a moral failure. I don't know. Maybe you looked at something at the computer that you shouldn't have looked at, or maybe you, you splurged too much on shopping, or maybe you let anger and bitterness well up into your heart, or maybe, I don't know, maybe you stole something. Or maybe you, just, maybe you just got distant from God, got a little angry at God or whatever. Uh, maybe you killed somebody. Maybe, uh, maybe, you, maybe you had an affair. Maybe you did something really horrible. Like maybe you committed one of the major sins, right? Um, all of them are just a manifestation of the ultimate sin, which is pride. Pride. Pride comes before the fall. So maybe you think that my, my area of weakness is sexual immorality or my, my area of weakness is greed. No, in reality, the area of weakness is, is pride in the heart. Pride in the heart. All right, check this out. By the way, if you want to do a little more research, I, I don't have time to get into it. Jeremiah 49.10, write that down. It says, but I will strip Esau bare and I will uncover his hiding places. Okay? Is he talking about Esau specifically? No. He's talking about the nation of Edom. And is he talking about the nation of Edom specifically? No. He's talking about you. He will lay us bare. He will strip us bare and he will uncover our hiding places. Why? Because he loves us. And Paul, read Romans 9, Paul really gets into this issue of God loving Esau or loving Jacob and hating Esau. Uh, Romans 9, 13. Check that out during the week. All right, this is what I got to close with. Jesus. Jesus, um, there was no pride in Jesus at all. There wasn't an ounce of pride in him. If anybody had the ability to be a proudful person, it's actually the son of God. When I say that pride is a sin, um, God means it. Now, there was a distortion and and an abuse in the church that happened a while ago over this issue of pride. And we thought, or we taught, or what was communicated that if, um, if you were a true believer, you wouldn't, be a pers- you wouldn't be a proudful person. Therefore, you would be a miserable, insecure person. And that couldn't be furthest from the truth. See, there is, um, see, pride is a sin. You know, you two have this great song, Pride in the Name of Love. Okay, so it's kind of a, that pride is, is good. But we're sticking with pride is a sin, okay? So there is a fine line between pride and confidence. 
The Lord doesn't want you to be proud, but the Lord does want you to be confident, to walk in strength, to be a confident person of integrity and character. Years ago, um, uh, there was a kid in the youth group, and he had this T-shirt on, and it said, loser. And then it said, I don't know, loser for Christ in the very small. And it sat, I understand the sentiment, right? Uh, you know, if you love your life, you'll lose it. You know, those that lose their life for me, they will gain the kingdom. I totally understand the idea of self-sacrifice. But that was, I, that was not the sentiment. What I, the tone that I took is, it is okay for Christians to be losers and slackers and to have a, a beat-down attitude. And that's not what God wants. He wants, God opposes the proud, but he's actually going to come along the side of you when you are confident in the Lord. Does that make sense? So there's, a, there's again, there's a fine line between co- being confident in the Lord and being proud of yourself and being proud in the heart. All right. Jesus, again, the person that had no pride in him, but was extremely confident in the Lord. He knew his father's voice. And this is, uh, this is his, uh, his trial. Then they took, then they rose up in a body and they took him off to Pilate. Pontius Pilate was a Roman citizen. They occupied Israel at this time. And they began, to, they began their accusations in these words. Here is the man whom we found corrupting our people and telling them uh, that it is wrong to pay taxes. Amen. <laughs> it's wrong, so wrong to pay taxes, especially the percentages that we pay. I, thought I shouldn't say that. Okay, all right. To paying taxes to Caesar, claiming that he himself is Christ, a king. But Pilate addressed his questions to Jesus. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, I am, he replied. So he's, he actually speaks to this pagan authority. Uh, Pilate rep- represents our secular society. Pilate represents everything that gets taught that side of Foothill Boulevard. Does that make sense? That's Pilate. That's Pontius Pilate. Everything that happens that is ungodly on Capitol Hill is is Pontius Pilate. Everything that happens that is ungodly in the UN is Pontius Pilate. It's the secular force. It's a demonic force that wants to undo the works of Christ. And it says, I am better than God. Then Pontius Pilate spoke to the chief priests and the crowd. And he says, I find, nothing wrong, I find nothing criminally about this man, but they pressed their charges saying, he's a troublemaker among the people. He teaches the whole of Judah all the way to Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard this, he inquired whether the man uh, were a Galilean. And when they discovered that he came under, ready for this, Herod's jurisdiction, he passed him on to Herod, who happened, uh, excuse me, who happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was delighted, for he had, he had been uh, wanting to see him for a long time. He'd heard a lot about Jesus, and he was hoping to see him perform miracles. Okay, do we know who Herod is? Okay, Herod is the king of the Jews at this time. He is the puppet king that the Greek rulers put, they put the, 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 the dynasty of Herod in place before the Romans came in. He's a puppet king. 
And Herod wants to see Jesus do miracles. He questioned him very thoroughly, but Jesus gave him absolutely no reply. Though the chief priests and the scribes stood there making the most violent accusations. So Herod joined his soldiers in the scoffing and jeering. Finally, they dressed him up in a gorgeous cloak and they sent him back to Pilate. Okay, what's the point? Herod is a puppet king. He is, he's been placed there by, um, by the Greeks. And guess where he came from? He came from Petra. He was an Edomite. He was one of the guys that had all the money. He was easy to control. He was easy to manipulate by the Greeks. And so here we have Jesus, who is the descendant of Jacob. And you have Herod, who is the descendant of Esau. We have, once again, we have this whole theme played out again. We have the two brothers, and they're standing face to face. And yet this time, instead of reconciliation, you have a man that is the very epitome of pride that is manifested in, in this king called Herod, who built these gorgeous palaces all over Israel to display his own glory. He said that I don't need God. Here's the interesting thing about Herod. He says, I want to see you do some magic tricks, Jesus. Isn't that cool? That is our human nature. That's our human condition. We actually desire to see this kind of stuff. Herod is no different than we are. He wants to see Jesus do some magic tricks. But what does Jesus say? You ready? Absolutely nothing. He is in the presence of one of the most powerful men in the area, and Jesus never opens his mouth. Why? Because Jesus can't do anything with proud people. If you think that you don't need God, then Jesus can't work with you. If you If you have a condition of pride in your heart, Jesus can't speak to you been talking a lot about hearing God, and I haven't weaved out through the whole thing. What blocks us from hearing God? It's a number of different things. Pride is a big bad boy in our heart that actually blocks us with the ability to listen to Jesus. And maybe you can listen to Jesus in certain areas of your life, but those certain areas that are, that are circling the drain, maybe, the, maybe you have pride attached to a certain part of your life, and Jesus can't speak because you're not allowing him to speak. Because that area of your heart is full of pride. All right, let's get the band that's just come to the front. I think that's just an amazing analogy that these two men are standing face to face and Jesus doesn't say a word. Okay, you need an antidote? What's the opposite of pride? Humility. How do you get the pride out of your heart? Repent. You change the way you think. You change the way you act. You see, Edom's heart was, was, it was wicked. And if you read the rest of Obadiah, you'll see that they, not only did they think wickedly, not only was there pride in their heart, they actually acted it out. The reason why they get condemned is because when Israel gets, oh, when Israel gets sacked, Israel's brother, Edom, their twin brother, they stand by and they just watch it all go down. They actually take part in the sacking and the looting. How would you like it if your sibling just took part in your downfall, kicked you while you're down, stabbed you in the back? 
That's why God uses Obadiah to come down so harshly on Edom because they were not a good brother. Jesus is a good brother. Jesus wants to get the pride out of our heart so that we can live a life full of grace. And that's offered for us today. All right, let's, uh, let's bow our heads, close our eyes. Heavenly Father, I just pray that, uh, that you will strip us bare right now. That you will just uncover the, the, the deep things in us, specifically the area of pride that says, God, I can do this on my own. I don't need you. God, for that, we repent, and we just allow you to come into the area of our heart that is the most proud-ridden, and we just, we just ask that you just heal us and forgive us. I pray that you just take that hardness of heart that's been infected by pride, and you just soften our hearts, and you make it smooth, and you make it plowable, that, that, that you, your, your Holy Spirit could come in and just minister in us and through us, and give us a confidence a confidence in the Lord that we can walk securely into your presence and we can feel your joy and your peace, your grace and your salvation, that we can move on to greater and better things, that we don't have to be hung up in the, the same old junk that we get stuck in. But you've called us to experience your glory and we can go from glory to glory instead of going up and down, up and down, up and down. So Father, right now, I just pray you just move us from glory to glory. Bless this offering in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.